0: If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland or you can phone 092713377 Buddhist Youth Association, Respectful, Beneficial, Empowering Hello and thanks for joining the program today. Human Architecture Journal of the Sociology of Self-Knowledge is the forbiddingly titled publication of the Omar Khayyam Center for Integrative Research in Utopia, Mysticism and Science which I hope doesn't put you off the program for the rest of the day. In this journal I found surprisingly enough a not at all forbidding poem on loving kindness by the Palestinian-American poet Lisa Soher Majaj. As we've been talking about the ultimate loving kindness bodhicitta, I thought it would be nice to open the program with a poem today. So here it is Bless the maniac barreling down the one way street the wrong way, who shakes his fist when I honk. May he live long enough to take driving lessons. Bless the postman puffing under the no smoking sign. When I complain, my mail goes mysteriously missing for months. Bless all those who debauch the air the mother wafting fumes across her baby's carriage, the man whose glowing stub accosts a pregnant woman's face. May they unlearn how to exhale. Bless the politicians who both give and receive bribes and favours. Bless the constituents seeking personal gain, the thieves, the liars, the sharks. And bless the fools who make corruption easy. May they be spared both wealth and penury. Bless the soldiers guiding checkpoints where women labour and give birth in the dirt. Bless the settlers swinging clubs into teenagers' faces, the boys shooting boys with bullets aimed to kill, the men driving bulldozers that flatten lives to rubble. May they wake from the dream of power drenched in the cold sweat of understanding. May they learn the body's frailty, the immensity of the soul. Bless the destroyers of Fallujah, the wreckers of Babylon, the torturers of Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay. May they understand desolation. May they comprehend despair. Bless the peace workers, the teachers, the word workers, the wavers of flags and the makers of fighter jets. May we know the ends of our labor and the means. May we make reparations. May we rebuild. Bless this planet, so cudgelled, so bounteous. The rainforests, the tundra, the ozone layer. May it persevere beyond our human follies. May it bloom. Bless cynicism. Bless hope. Bless the fingers that type, the computer that processes, the printer that prints. Bless email and snail mail. Bless poetry books that cross oceans in battered envelopes bearing small flames of words. Bless the boys shooting boys with bullets aimed to kill. Bless the peacemakers, the teachers, the word workers. In our normal state of mind, would we really want the killers as well as the teachers and peacemakers to be equally blessed? No. The usual self-righteous approach would be to curse the killers and bless the peacemakers. Or the other way around, depending on your point of view. But that doesn't take into account the killer that is in all of us standing right beside the Peacemaker. It takes an extraordinary feat of mind to see beyond the mere appearance to the common humanity in all of us, the good and the bad, and recognize the ignorance that lies behind ill-will. Seeing that the killer and the Peacemaker are different sides of the same coin, and developing compassion and loving kindness for both is the act of a Bodhisattva. But I bet Lisa Suha Mahajaj is not even a Buddhist. Under belief, her bio only says respect for all peoples and cultures but she may well be a Bodhisattva. Anyway, perhaps I should stop complaining and we should get on with the text we are following Lama Tsongkhapa's three principal aspects of the path. The path refers, of course, to the path to enlightenment and the principal aspects are renunciation, bodhicitta and the correct view of reality. We've covered renunciation and have been looking at bodhicitta, the mind that wishes to gain enlightenment to benefit all living beings. The relevant verse in Lama Tungkaba's text reads, However, if your determination to be free, that is renunciation, is not sustained by the pure altruistic intention, bodhicitta, it does not become the cause for the perfect bliss of unsurpassed enlightenment. Therefore, the intelligent generate the supreme thought of enlightenment. Now the Supreme Thought of Enlightenment refers of course to Bodhicitta and last time we finished covering the benefits of this mind and now we're going to investigate the various ways in which we can cultivate it. But first, let's set our motivation as we usually do. May this program become the cause for the enlightenment of all living beings and may I attain enlightenment to help that to happen. If you can think in those terms it would be best. But if you can't, at least think in terms of your own liberation from all suffering. Thank you. Now before we get on to the ways to generate Bodhicitta, I must mention three intentions that have to underlie our generation of Bodhicitta. Tipton Chodron talks about them in her commentary and they echo what His Holiness the Dalai Lama often says in his teachings. The first is the intention to avoid harming any living being. And that means any living beings, even those that annoy or attack us. So if you really want to develop bodhicitta, throw away all those fly sprays, cockroach poisons and flea collars for your favorite pet. And Now I can just hear the howls of outrage. But it is true that bodhicitta doesn't see the flea or cockroach as any less in value than the pet dog or cat, or even ourselves. And if we're going to develop the intention to help all beings, how can we possibly have aversion to some, an attachment to others? So we have to take on the responsibility not to harm any being whatsoever according to our greatest ability. Then the second intention is to help wherever we can. Now this is very nice, but it can become a bit fraught if we're not careful. It doesn't necessarily mean we go barging into any situation wild to make a contribution. Help has to be tempered by wisdom so that we are as sure as we can be that our help is not going to backfire on us. I read somewhere, I think it was an pema Chodron talk, about some Westerners going to Bodhgaya where the Buddha became enlightened and feeling sorry for the beggars they found there. They decided to collect some money for them, which they did, But when they went back to the square where the beggars usually hung out, only one beggar was sitting there. So they gave him all the money. The next day they learned that the beggar had drunk himself to death on all the money he'd been given. Now we can't blame the westerners. They could hardly have known that's what would have happened as a result of their generosity. But with the intention to help, we also have to be able to stand back and assess whether our help is actually going to be of benefit. The third intention is to carry the bodhicitta mind with us in whatever we do. Tipton children calls this intention a long-range spiritual motivation wanting to become a Buddha to benefit everybody. If we try to generate those three things every day and make it a habit, that becomes a very strong cause for actually generating bodhicitta, Tipton children claims. Because what we are doing is rehabituating our mind with different thoughts because a lot of what we're trying to do in spiritual practice is retrain our mind or reform our mind. Yes, we're all in reformatory school. We're trying to reform different habits. So instead of waking up with the thought, what do I have to do today and is the coffee ready yet or I want to sleep some more, we train the mind to wake up with this feeling of purpose and meaning and joy. And then throughout the day remember this. This means we constantly remind ourselves of bodhicitta, so that it becomes our ongoing motivation, even if we can't act on it as well as we would like. So now, keeping in mind those three intentions, let's examine whether we can actually carry them out. Remember, in an earlier program, we spoke about our natural tendency to slot people into one of three categories, friend, enemy or stranger. If we still hold those discriminations in our mind, it will be very difficult to also hold the motivations not to harm but to help wherever possible and to always cultivate bodhicitta. We have to develop equanimity, even to the extent that Lisa Soha Marjaj goes to in her poem. We must have the same attitude to the boys shooting bullets at other boys with the intention to kill as we have to the peacemakers. Of course, that doesn't mean that we act towards them in the same way or give up our values. As Tipton Chodron says, We can still prefer that money doesn't go to the NRA. We can still value keeping animals safe. However, instead of thinking that the person who acts one way or another in a situation is inherently good or inherently flawed, we need to be able to step back and see that some people have some good qualities and some people have some bad qualities. It may be a pity that this person's generosity is going towards a terrorist organization. We don't want that. But we don't just label this other person as evil and throw them in the garbage. We see that they are misdirected. We see that they don't really understand what generosity is about. But we don't just give them a label and ignore them after that. Before we can begin to generate bodhicitta we have to develop equanimity. We have to stop the mind that judges friends to be really wonderful, enemies inherently evil and strangers of no consequence. Once again, Tipton Children provides a good example from her own experience. She was with the reincarnation of her teacher, Sergong Rinpoche, who had a sponsor who had from time to time helped Rinpoche. This is how Tupton Children describes what happened. This sponsor, in my opinion, sometimes acts in ways that are really inappropriate. He called one day and Rinpoche's house was all full and this guy says, I'm coming tonight. My girlfriend and I are coming tonight and we want to stay X number of days. Rinpoche says, sure. And I'm going, what? Why did you tell him to go stay stay somewhere else? He can't call it the last moment. It's so inconvenient on everybody in your household. The cook and everything like this. This guy's always doing this. I mean, I was nice in the way I said it. But you know, in my mind I was like, mmm. Anyway, Rinpoche just said, It's okay. So this guy came with his wife and they stayed all these days and everybody was squished in. It didn't influence me so much as it influenced other people in the household who had to do more work. I just noticed Rinpoche treated those people so well. He was just so nice to them. He was sweet to them. He didn't get all bent out of shape and I realized, wow, this really shows me his spiritual development. Because if he can treat someone who acts like this in a very kind way, then even when I'm obnoxious, he'll treat me in a kind way too. So instead of being jealous, how come he's being so nice to this guy who's so obnoxious and not nice to me when I'm better, it was like, whoa, I'm really glad he had this kind of equanimity because this will spread to everybody that he comes in contact with. I really saw that his way of treating the situation actually prevented a lot of bad feelings from coming up. My way of treating it might have stirred up a lot of bad feelings so actually it's very good I kept my mouth shut. His example made me kind of extend myself and try to be nice to these people. And that's Thupten children. I had a similar experience when I went to help my teacher, Kensatab Kirmashe, return to New Zealand from Mongolia where he'd been teaching for two years. I stayed in the monastery with him and from early morning till late at night he would have visitors. Some would come while others were still with him, but he never chased anybody away. He always made room in his quite small living quarters and offered his visitors a cup of tea. One time, when he was busy with one family, I guess he had something serious to discuss as he asked me to stand at the door and not let anybody else in. So I did. But then one family arrived and wouldn't take no for an answer. They pushed past me and barged into the room where Rimshe was. Rinpoche didn't show the slightest anger or irritation. He smiled and welcomed them in and, as usual, made space for them, even though the room was already quite full. And he never mentioned the incident to me afterwards. He just accepted that is what had happened and continued to treat everybody with the same equanimity. In fact, although he was very busy with the monastery business, as well as seeing people all day, I never saw him express even the least irritation, except once, When a woman came to him for advice but refused to take it as she she had already made up her mind what to do. Why did she come if she already knew what she wanted to do, he asked with some exasperation. We have to develop what Tipton Children calls an open-hearted concern for everyone. See that in some way everybody is wanting happiness and everyone is having suffering, she says. People are pushed by their own causes and conditions to play whatever role or to do whatever they're going to do in a situation. But it's not really who they are. These things change all the time. The person who you think is harming you, if you look at it differently, they're helping you. Or even if you don't look at it differently, five minutes later, they're helping you. The person you think is helping you, you find out later, was trying to harm you. Or even if they were helping you at that moment, their motivation changes and they're harming you. Somebody gives us $1,000 today and they're our friend. They steal our stuff tomorrow and they become an enemy. The idea is that when we step back from all of this, we have a bigger picture. We see there's no use in getting so bent out of shape and so involved with these temporary actions and roles that people are in for at that period of time. We begin to see that they're all suffering in one way or another, aren't they? It's this ability to have a bigger mind about the bigger picture that enables us to generate actual compassion for people because we begin to see that everybody is under the influence of their own ignorance, anger and attachment. At one particular moment they're acting one particular way but from their side they're still tangled up in all these turbulent emotions. They're not free and so we have compassion. In the well-known text my w- The Words of My Perfect Teacher Patra Rinpoche echoes this when he says about developing equanimity, Now it's no substitute for boundless impartiality just to think of everybody, friends and enemies, as the same without any particular feeling of compassion, hatred or whatever. This is mindless impartiality and brings neither harm nor benefit. The image given for truly boundless impartiality is a banquet given by a great sage. When the great sages of old offered feasts, They would invite everyone, high or low, powerful or weak, good or bad, exceptional or ordinary, without making any distinction whatsoever. Likewise, our attitude towards all beings throughout space should be a vast feeling of compassion, encompassing them all equally. Train your mind until you reach such a state of boundless impartiality. Patra Rinpoche makes the point that all the people we are so attached to in this life have certainly been our enemies in previous lives. And similarly, those we regard with dislike or hatred now have been our closest and dearest companions. If we were able to look back at all our beginningless previous existences, we would see that we have been everything to all beings. Our present relationships, good or bad, are just temporary and will surely change. There's a whole industry built around the coming together and breaking up of celebrities, But look even among your friends and acquaintances and you will find impermanence. People stand at the altar and swear undying allegiance to each other but two years later or sometimes even two months they are at each other's throats and making the divorce lawyers rich. We only have to remember the people we were close to when we were much younger to see that very few of them are still in our lives. Maybe one or two are still our friends but most we probably will not even recognize if we saw them in the street and the same applies to the people we could we just could not get on with when we were younger remembering this we can start relaxing the boundaries of friend enemy and stranger to develop warm open-heartedness to all beings everywhere this open-hearted impartial attitude is the basis for generating bodhicitta and when we have realized it we can go on to the meditations that lead to Bodhicitta. Tibetan Buddhism focuses mainly on two methods to develop Bodhicitta although Lama Tsongkhapa combined the two, so you could say he thus formed a third. The first method is called the Six Cause and One Effect and the second is equalizing and exchanging self for others. Those of you who followed the programs on Shantideva's The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life will be familiar with the second for it was Shantideva's preferred method. However, we are going to start with the six cause and one effect method. This starts with seeing all beings as our previous mother, which leads on to recognizing their kindness to us. The wish then arises to repay that kindness, and from that comes heartwarming love. From that love is born great compassion, which in turn leads to making a great resolve. So those are the six causes. Once again, the first is seeing all beings as our mother. The second is remembering their kindness. The third is wishing to repay the kindness. And the fourth is heartwarming love. And the fifth is great compassion. And the final cause is making a great resolve. Out of these six causes comes the one effect, bodhicitta. The meditation starts with seeing all beings as one's mother. Now we say mother, but actually we're talking about the person who most acted like a true and loving mother to us. Some people are brought up by a grandmother, or their father, uncle or aunt, or even a foster parent, instead of their birth mother. So when we use the word mother here, it's a substitute for the person who was the primary caregiver. But before considering the kindness of the mother, we have to make a slight diversion into the consideration of the continuity of mind and how it takes bodies from life to life. I'm often asked what Buddhists say carries on after death. What takes karma from one life to another? I asked one teacher this and he said it was the mere I which didn't really explain it for me and he couldn't elaborate, perhaps because of the language difficulties. I've since found a definition by Sogni Rinpoche which describes it as a very fluid sense of being that might best be described as a stream of experiences. At this stage in our development, we have no words or labels for the things we experience or for the self that is experiencing. The distinctions made at the level of mere I are very light. They run into a sort of continuous and continuously changing movie in which we are fully and vividly immersed. So it is this stream of experiences that continues but let's say for simplicity and the argument's sake that it is consciousness, not the consciousness we have in our everyday life, but something more flowing, less seemingly solidified through our ideas of who and what we are. Anyway, this consciousness in the Buddhist belief system has no beginning. Its history stretches back through time and non-time, and it takes life after life after life and so on. When the Buddha looked back at his previous lives under the Bodhi tree, it is said that he couldn't find a first one. Of course, we could be skeptical and say rebirth is unproven because we can't remember or see it. However, that doesn't compute because we mostly can't remember our consciousness when we were a baby or young child in this life either. When I think back to my childhood, I remember certain events, but much of that childhood has since faded to nothing. However, we can see by just observing the mind that an instant of consciousness comes from its immediately preceding instant of consciousness, which in turn comes from its immediately preceding instant of consciousness, and so on. If we continue to go back like this, we eventually come close to the time of conception, when the consciousness enters the mixture of sperm and over. Where does that initial moment of consciousness of this life come from? It can't come out of thin air and being non-physical it's not born out of the physical substances of mother and father. It must also come from a previous moment of consciousness when it wasn't in this life yet and if we continue the backward investigation in this way we find that our moments of consciousness lead back to previous lives. Now Tipton Children recognizes this might be difficult for us to comprehend and urges us to think about being a baby unable to look after ourselves. I think one of the things that makes understanding rebirth difficult for us is that we so much identify with our present body and our present ego that we cannot imagine ever being different, she says. But think about being a baby. Can you even think about your mind being a baby's mind? What it would be like to have a baby's mind? You know, it seems so out of sight, doesn't it? I mean, can you imagine just having your body to be that big? You pee and you poo everywhere. You can't even roll yourself over. I mean, we were once like that in this body, weren't we? Can you even imagine having a body like that? Not being able to care of, take care of yourself. Not being able to talk and say, feed me. But being totally trapped inside this body, hoping that somebody feeds you or you're too hot and you don't have to have the conceptual mind Come take my sweater off, I'm too hot. All you do is, you're in this body and you're so hot so you go, Wah! The original complaint. So it's hard even to match. I mean, think about it sometime. Try and imagine not having all the verbal conceptual understanding you have now and being in a baby's body. It's hard. But imagining like that, we might get the idea that we were not always the way that we instinctively think we are right now. That baby wasn't actually you at all. All the cells in that baby's body have been replaced by many times over and presumably you no longer have the baby mind at all. It really is as if you're a completely different being. Similarly, you're not the same being as the 8 or 9 or 10 year old that you have vague memories of being. And if that is so with incarnations in this life, Why is it so difficult to believe in the mind being reborn in other bodies in previous lives? Now if we've had other bodies in other lives and the first one cannot be found, it means that we've had infinite other lives, not just a few. And in many of those lives we've had a mother or primary caregiver who played the role of a mother. It wasn't necessarily the same mother each time. But because of the infinities we're talking about, each being probably has been our parent many times. Atisha, the great Indian master who revived Buddhism in Tibet, had a habit of greeting others, even animals, with, Hello, Mother! And to explain, teachers have the example of being close to your mother when you're very small, but then being separated from her. Years later, you're walking down the street when you pass an old beggar woman. You've only gone a few steps when you realize that the old woman is your mother. Then instead of walking past without another thought, you can't ignore her. You have to go to her and give her love and protection. And that is how Atisha saw other beings, as if they were the mothers he'd been separated from for a long time. I sometimes say to people that they were my mother, but I usually get the strangest of looks and a kind of strangled vocal response. It's difficult to believe that we've been each other's parents before because we have such fixed ideas about who we are and who others are but our concepts are much too rigid and perhaps we can spend the next week looking at other beings and saying hello mother, to ourselves of course. I can just imagine walking up to a complete stranger in the street and saying, how are you mother dear? I would probably get a handbag around my ear or swiftly be taken to the nearest ward dealing in mental treatment. And there we must say goodbye as time is up. Thanks for joining the program today and I hope you'll do so again next week. Please dedicate any positive energy from the program to the enlightenment of all beings. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.